Okay. <clears throat> You're welcome for the sniffles. Yep. I had a little of that earlier, too. Should we yep. just do a line of Coke and get that over with? <laughs> <laughs> This is the part of the podcast where we each do a line. <laughs> Can I do a psilocybin chaser, please? <laughs> oh, man. Should we have Dan leave that in? Leave it in, Dan! <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh, God. Uh, so we're off to a good start here. We're doing lines. <laughs> Sometimes when you talk about narcissism, you want to be coked up. Am I wrong? Oh, my God. Or you or you feel like the person you're talking to is coked up. That's more accurate, I think. I know it is. Yep. Oh, my gosh. This is the best podcast ever. I'll have some of what they're having. <laughs> All the confidence, none of the responsibility. That's right. And just a little white powder around the neck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a donut. Powder donut. <laughs> this podcast not sponsored by Banbury Cross Donuts. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, okay, so maybe that's our intro. That's our teaser. And then we'll come back from the break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What in the fuck are they talking about? Cocaine and narcissism. All right, here we go. <laughs> Strap yourselves in, folks. That's going to be a bumpy ride. It is. Boss is here. Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family. With more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Lesbian. Today is not about an ex-Mormon gay girl trying to figure out her life. And that's okay, because we have Kimberly here. What am I, chopped liver? <laughs> I didn't think you were still trying to figure it out. Is that wrong? Okay, let's just clear up a misconception. Even though, especially because I'm a therapist, that means I'm still working it out. I will never, ever, ever have it all figured out, and I will never claim to have it all figured out. Okay, um, you're a role model. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Should we introduce ourselves? Do we need to? It's already devolved. (laughs) I'm Mary... I'm Kimberly. And we're talking about... Narcissism. Narcissism. Woo. Give me an N. N. I'm not going to go through the entire word. Because sometimes you spell it with one S, two S's, one C, two C's, or the two S's at the end, at the beginning. Uh, thank God we can just, in my profession, we could just call it NPD. Okay. And I think narcissism as a word is kind of like, you don't need to introduce me. Everybody knows who I am. I'm narcissism. Right. Well, we we've had an intimate relationship <laughs> with an overt narcissist for the past four years. Oh, that is true. If you don't know what an overt narcissist is by now, you have not been paying attention. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, anyone who thinks they can just walk out in the street and start shooting people and not be held accountable—that sounds like a narcissist to me. Uh, actually, I'm not going to say that's a narcissist. That's going to be something much, much different than a narcissist. Is it? What is that? Well, sociopath with homicidal tendencies. Well, that's true. <laughs> What's the best way to dive into this topic, Kimberly? Well, I just want to say that this has been a long time coming. That's what she said. (laughs) I look at this as kind of part three of a trilogy. One of the things that I am trying to do as a therapist is to empower individuals to be able to see and recognize challenges and problems in their life, recognize them as maladaptive or not helpful, and then try to figure out a way for them to see or for them to formulate a way to break free of that maladaptive pattern and move on into a healthier space in their life. Yeah. As a former Mormon who, you know, experienced a tremendous amount of abuse, 
at the hands of the Mormon Church, and who fully believes I have a raging, burning dumpster fire inside of me about the truth claims and the veracity of the church, I know that I can't run around like a chicken with my head cut off and tell everyone to leave the church. Mm. That's not fair. That's not my role as a therapist. My role as a therapist is to empower people with tools and skills so that when they see something in their own life that they would like to change, they have a way through that intellectually and emotionally that they can make the necessary changes as they see fit. Yeah. So the three-prong way that I like to talk about this is helping people understand boundaries, particularly when boundaries have been crossed, codependency, and narcissism. When the individual can see that their boundaries aren't being honored or that they were never taught to have boundaries, right? when they can see that their lack of boundaries often can lead to a codependent relational pattern, and when they can see that that codependent relational pattern often is with a narcissist, they can see that that relational pattern or that relational dynamic is a very unhealthy, unsafe, yea, verily even toxic environment. And when the individual has enough self-empowerment, self-determination, self-confidence, and self-worth to break out of that system, those tools that are used by the narcissist, the tools that are used within that codependent relational pattern, and the boundaries that have been torn down, those things that the individual can now have a very firm understanding of how to reset, reinforce, and maintain all those things so that they don't fall back into that unhealthy pattern. Yeah. Can we back up just a little bit and sort of, in your view, define what a narcissist is? Thank you for asking. I thought you never would. If that Kimberly <laughs> Anderson would ever shut the fuck up, we could get to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual number five, and we can go through the nine criteria for narcissistic personality disorder, which, by the way, has only been around since 1980. It's relatively new. Oh, really? Yeah. What'd they call people who maybe had this before that? Charismatic leaders. Okay. <laughs> Joseph Smith. <laughs> For sure. We are on page 669 of the DSM-5, if you'd like to look it up. Narcissistic personality disorder. We're doing a little deep dive here. By the way, everyone at home, you can look these up online if you want to go along with me, or you can just trust that I'm actually reading out of the manual. I do have a copy of it downloaded on my laptop, so you will not hear pages turning. That's considerate. I don't want to interrupt anyone with ASMR issues to, you know, become overwhelmed with page turning sounds. Oh, okay. So narcissistic personality disorder. This would be uh, code 301.81. The F code is 60.81. Diagnostic criteria. A pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, need for admiration, and lack of empathy. Beginning in early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, as indicated by five or more of the following. And there are nine criteria that we'll go through. So those of you at home, put a finger down. We'll do that again. Number one, has a grandiose sense of self-importance. In other words, exaggerates achievements and talents. Expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. Number two, is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Number three, 
believes that he or she, and I'm going to even introduce them since we're all inclusive gender-wise on Latter-day Lesbian Podcast and in my own life. Absolutely. Believes that he, she, or them is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people or institutions. Mm. And we'll talk about that later on the podcast. Number four, requires excessive admiration. Number five, has a sense of entitlement, i.e. unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her or their expectations. Number six, is interpersonally exploitative, i.e. takes advantage of others to achieve his or her or their own ends. Number seven, lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others. Number eight, is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her or them. Number nine, shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. Yeah. So to fit the technical diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder or NPD, you have to hit five or more of those nine characteristics. Okay. So are there degrees of narcissistic behavior? There are indeed, as many, if not all, things in life. Things exist on a spectrum. Right. And we'll talk about four different subtypes of narcissists as the conversation proceeds. This criteria is a very overt or a very external, outward-facing, powerful form of narcissism. There are others that are slightly different, and we'll kind of tease those apart as well. I think the main reason why I want to go and dig into the DSM criteria is just to point out to individuals that when you start calling people a narcissist, or when you just start throwing that term around, you're really kind of doing the narcissist and yourself a disservice because you're just kind of throwing the blanket statement of they're a narcissist over the top of them. And you really don't know what that means or what the criteria is. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I like to do to break away from the just the stereotype of, oh, you're a narcissist or that person is a narcissist, what I'm starting to say and shift is uh, using language like, well, they exhibit many traits of narcissism or narcissistic personality traits. Gotcha. Because I'm not their therapist. And even if I were their therapist, I wouldn't be telling people that their diagnosis is something that they have. Sure. It's a violation of HIPAA. So unless you're that person's therapist, mm-hmm. don't diagnose them. And if you are that person's therapist, don't share that diagnosis with anybody else because you're breaking the fucking law. Right. But it does make you wonder, though, what is the percentage of narcissists who are actually diagnosed? Because wouldn't that require feeling like you need to go to therapy to get a diagnosis? Uh, I Thank you. I read a statistic recently that says one in 16 people suffer from narcissism. It's a lot. One in 16 suffer from narcissism, not diagnosed with NPD, two different things. Okay. And as we were saying earlier that this exists on a spectrum, there are healthy forms of narcissism. Like fake it till you make it kind of a thing or? Or just having a healthy but controllable sense of self. Having, you know, forward-thinking, optimistic thoughts and plans that might be grandiose, but also knowing that 
Uh, if they don't happen, it's not a reflection badly on you or on others. Mm-hmm. These realistic expectations kind of hold that internal, you know, self-inflating ego in check. Sure. But yeah, the the narcissistic personality disorder, I think we need to be very careful when we just start throwing things around, especially like bipolar or borderline, uh, especially with autism or ADHD. Unless you know that person or yourself, you can either self-diagnose or have a professional assessment done. I would say really be really very careful with just throwing around uh, psychology terms and diagnostic terms at people without really truly knowing. It doesn't do anybody a service. That makes sense. And it makes you sound like you're just a hyperbolic idiot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, if you want to say, oh, this person certainly meets with many uh, diagnostic criteria for narcissistic tendencies or narcissistic traits, and here's what I exhibit or here's what I experience from them, well, they certainly are preoccupied with fantasies. They are interpersonally exploitative, and they often uh, show arrogant or haughty behavior towards others. Right. That's only three of nine. That doesn't diagnose them. And certainly, if if you're not the therapist, you're not diagnosing, so... Sure. That's my pet peeve, honestly. That's my little stick in my cross, so to speak. I could see that would be irritating. You could certainly feel the damage by associating like a lifetime association with someone who you suspect could have tendencies. Absolutely. But that still does not make them a narcissist 100%. No, and in fact, I I have for years considered my mother, my adoptive mother, a classic narcissist. Mm -hmm. But as I kind of am able to look at her personality through the various lenses of the kind of the cluster B personality disorders, I'm backing away from saying that she's a narcissist and I'm thinking that she has some other things going on, Mm. uh, possibly some bipolar disorder uh, or some borderline or a presentation of both with narcissistic traits. I have not spoken to my mother recently, so and I'm not her therapist. Yeah. But I can certainly, you know, identify with you saying that these people that we've been with for years, we do develop a body of evidence mm-hmm. that we can kind of overlay a set of optics over these people and say, oh, this is the lens I'm operating under, and here's how I'm looking at your personality, yeah. specifically as it relates to my experience with you. One of the criteria you read was about jealousy. That sent a light bulb off in my brain because as an adult, I stopped telling my mother when I was going on vacation because she always acted jealous and acted taken aback that I wouldn't naturally invite her on my vacation with my partner. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like it just didn't occur to her that she wouldn't be invited to come along. And then she just acted all weird about any kind of fun thing that I was doing. So I just stopped telling her. That's a good boundary. That's a good boundary setting. And we'll talk about boundaries uh, as we kind of go through this conversation today. By the way, I have an outline. I have an agenda. You do. This is what we would call the trans therapist agenda. Okay, let's do it. (laughs) It involves coffee and donuts at some point. So if somebody can get their butt over here with some donuts, that would be great. Well, we do have a new coffee sponsor. So there you go. Did not know this. I'm dying to hear. Well, it was just announced last week which is coming out today. <laughs> oh, so that's why I don't know. <laughs> that's why you don't know about it. <laughs> oh, so I'm on the inside now. Yeah. Dish, let's hear. So it's Mahogany Queen Coffee Co. And the easiest way to get our blend, which is the LDL After Dark blend, it's a dark roast with notes of like molasses and brown sugar and all kinds of yumminess. You go to latterdaylesbian.org slash coffee. That's the easiest way to get it. 
Do they have a blend that has notes of bitterness, betrayal, shame, and guilt? <laughs> Is that the Mormon blend? That would be the ex-Mormon blend, yes. <laughs> ex-Mormon, because Mormon blend wouldn't exist. No, that's right. That's why they can't drink coffee, because it would have all those awful notes. I think we just cracked the code. I think we did. Can I share the outline with you, and you can cut it out if you want? Please do. I want to cover the four subtypes of narcissism and the narcissistic wound. I want to cover the narcissistic cycle of abuse. I want to cover the relational dynamics with narcissists and codependent people, specifically the difference between empathetic people and a trauma response that we call fawning. Mm. Um, I definitely want to talk about institutional narcissism, specifically a research paper that I have by Lynn Godkin and, and Seth Allen. It's a beautiful uh, research paper about arrogant organizational disorder. Hmm. There's a diagram that is in this research study. I was looking at this the other day. It blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind because I want what I want to do is I want to take a look at this arrogant organizational disorder or institutional narcissism, and I want to examine the Mormon church through that lens. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about how the institutional narcissism breeds and grooms narcissistic personalities within Mormonism, how it breeds and grooms codependent personalities, often with women. And then I want to talk about the opposite of narcissism, which is basically the four agreements. I love it. Let's jump in. Where do you want to start? Well, it's going to be long, so I want everyone to grab some popcorn, get in your comfy chair, uh, grab some of that new sponsored coffee that you probably don't have time to order and get shipped and made. <laughs> Unless you're listening in the future, Ooh. then you can. <laughs> in some version of real reality, there would be someone who could listen in the future and order. And Yeah, it's possible that someone listened to last week's episode, didn't get around to the one we're recording right now for weeks down the road, ordered the coffee and is drinking it right now and listening to this podcast. That is possible. Is that a Latter-day lesbian wormhole? <laughs> I think we found that. Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> oh, does it start with a V? Something like that. It's a three-dimensional model that extends up into the body of the woman, the people born with vaginas and clitoris. Yeah. <clears throat> I have those. I'm raising my hands. <laughs> I just did a podcast with another therapist about uh, queer Mormon sex that should be uh, fascinating. Oh, cool. Right. It was pretty cool. But we won't plug that podcast because we're plugging your fucking podcast. <laughs> Let's do it. So we've got the DSM-5 definition of narcissism. There's this entire cluster B uh, in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There's a cluster B category of personality disorders that includes bipolar, uh, borderline, schizoid, schizoaffective, schizotypical, uh, a bunch of different personality disorders. And they often can bleed into one another and be misdiagnosed for one another, depending on a variety of life events, including trauma. It's important to know that there is a whole subsection of personality disorders that narcissistic personality disorder is just kind of a subset of this larger thing and because narcissism is so casually bantered about, often other personality disorders get mislabeled or misread as narcissism. Hmm. So if you're around someone who you feel kind of fits this criteria that we're going to talk about today, it might do you some good to do some a little bit of digging and research onto the cluster B personality disorders. I mean, not that you're diagnosing. More often than not, the people listening to this podcast aren't therapists or aren't diagnosing personality disorders. And I myself don't have a lot of experience diagnosing individuals with cluster B traits. And I know that it's part of what I'm seeing in my clinical practice, especially kind of from parents, uh, non-accepting parents of their queer and trans youth. Often I see a relational dynamic that involves a narcissist and a codependent individual. Hmm. So that was, a, that was a long explanation of what we're going to go into next. 
We're going to talk about the four subtypes of uh, narcissistic personality disorder. The first type, and I'm going to try and cite as many people as I can. I'm actually pulling a lot of this from the, from Psychology Today or from Psych Central. This particular article is from the NarcissisticLife.com. This is an individual named Alexander Bergam, Bergamister. Hmm. Is he the Bergamister Meesterberger? <laughs> I'm Mr. Heatmiser. I'm Mr. Son. And I know you have a story about that song. Ba -ba -ba -ba. Yes, I do. I, <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have a Land Rover that was built in 1953, and I restored it, and I wanted to have an authentic Land Rover canvas top, but I wanted it to be custom made. A friend of mine in Maine, Badger Coachworks, he builds these special canvas tops for Land Rovers. Christopher Hawes, H-A-W-E-S, his father wrote all of the songs, composed the music, and wrote all the lyrics for all of those Rankin-Bass Christmas specials. Uh-huh. And when I was ordering my top, somehow the conversation spun around to that. And I and we just had the best time because I know all the songs and all the lyrics. Of course. By the way, I think the Burgermeister Meister Burger might be an overt narcissist. Oh, really? Yeah, because he's the leader. He's the mayor of the town without the kids. Uh huh. And very arrogant, very haughty. Uh, my way or the highway. Uh huh. And and this is interesting to think about because kind of in a roundabout way, he is a classic narcissist. In the short story, Santa Claus is coming to town. Burgermeister Meisterberger reveals that he indeed does have a narcissistic wound hmm. that happened in childhood, which gives him a fragile ego or a distorted you know, sense of self. Uh -huh. And he is overcompensating by being an overt narcissist later in life. Interesting. Because mm -hmm. maybe you could also make the argument that Heat Miser and Freeze Miser, whatever they're called, are both narcissists and their mother, Mother Nature is codependent, but she's also passive-aggressive because when they get out of line, she just sends, like, lightning and thunder and stuff to shut them up. <laughs> wow. This whole show. That Rankin-Bass, they just blew my mind. I know. It's not funny that we go from Alexander Bergameister to Burgermeister Meisterberger to <laughs> narcissistic personality disorder to codependency <laughs> to Mother Nature and cartoons and Land Rover tops. Yeah, but you know, you make such a good point about Burgermeister, whatever his name was. Burger what? Burger, Burgermeister Meister, Meisterberger. Yeah, what was his wound from childhood? Something he felt rejected or something was taken away. Do you remember exactly what happened to him? Uh... But it kind of makes you wonder, like, okay, well, how are narcissists made? Well, narcissists are made with that childhood wound, with that narcissistic wound from a primary caregiver that either shatters their hopes, their dreams, their self-confidence, puts them down in public, yes. shames them from a young age in such a way that their core ego or their core sense of self is very, very, very damaged. Yes. And in order to protect that damaged inner child, this person forms a false self that is so strong, so powerful so outward-facing that no one can reach back in and hurt that original child that has that narcissistic wound. That narcissistic wound can happen at, you know, up until your early teens, but usually it happens young in life. And this is another thing that's interesting about narcissists. Mothers who are narcissists often see their children as extensions of self. Mm -hmm. And so there is a thing called children of narcissists who are also narcissists, Moms will sometimes groom and raise and train their child to be a narcissist in order for other people to view their child in a healthy way or in a 
self-aggrandizing way that then in turn feeds the mother. Interesting. So this inter- intergenerational dynamics gets really all kinds of messed up. That's complicated, isn't it? It's very complicated, uh-huh. So that's the narcissistic wound that Burgermeister Meisterberger had. I mean, this is a, <laughs> this could be a doctoral dissertation, honestly. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I know, I know. Narcissism through the eyes of Rankin Bass? Yeah, it totally could. Think about, or the DSM through the eyes of Rankin Bass. Mm-hmm. Let's just stay in, in the Rankin-Bass universe. Let's go to Rudolph. Santa Claus. What an asshole. Well, Santa Claus <laughs> is an asshole. Santa Claus turned himself around. Yeah. Think about Rudolph's dad, though. He saw the nose. He immediately scoops up the mud and forms a false nose for Rudolph so that Rudolph's defect, the thing that would bring the family shame, isn't visible to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's true. Rudolph's dad only turns... When Rudolph's defect is proven to be beneficial for another narcissist, Santa. Yes. And brings the dad honor and hope and glory and fame. Uh-huh. So that's when Rudolph's dad turns. Yeah. You narcissistic motherfucker. Oh. Uh. By the way, can I say that on this podcast? <laughs> Beep. Yeah, I think okay. you can. Cool. I checked the explicit box for this podcast, so you're safe. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, let's think about Rudolph has an insecure attachment style. I mean, we can jump into attachment styles now. Herbie, the elf, the closeted gay elf, <laughs> yeah. he and Rudolph go off to be, ind- let's be independent together. That would be interdependence. I want to be a dentist. Yes. The Isle of, Island of Misfit Toys reigned by a king. That's a bunch of codependent uh, individuals that are, that are fawning for or seeking help from an authority figure. Although that one is more benevolent. I think that that Lion King with the wings, King Moon Racer, something like that. Something like that. He's actually a pretty cool guy as far as kings are concerned. Um, you know, kind of a benevolent dictatorship on the Island of Mif- Misfit Toys. Mm-hmm. Who's the guy that ended up taking care of the bumble? Is that Yukon Cornelius? Yukon Cornelius. <laughs> He's probably the most well-adjusted of them all. <laughs> I think you're right. Although he has his own visions of fantasies and glory with, with uh, silver and gold. That's one humble bumble. <laughs> Bumbles <laughs> bounce. <laughs> Good Lord, are we talking about Christmas specials? And it's, Is it April? I know. Are we airing this at the wrong time? Could be. This could be the Latter-day Lesbian Christmas special. <laughs> I'll bring it back. But it might it might be fun to spend the next eight months investigating the Rankin-Bass specials through the eyes of personality disorders. <laughs> Certainly with Charlie Brown, you could do that. Oh, my gosh. That show. <laughs> Poor Charlie Brown. Let's talk about Charlie Brown and narcissism. Who would be the narcissist in the Charlie Brown universe? Uh, Lucy. That's right. Lucy would be an overt narcissist. And she deceives him and he falls for it every single time with that stupid football. Every single time. Which brings us to one of the subtypes of narcissism, the seductive narcissist. So the overt narcissist would be someone like former President Donald Trump, which still hurts my brain to say that, but I will honor those titles. (laughs) Fucking narcissistic son of a bitch. Yes. Transphobic, homophobic, xenophobic, asshole that will go down in the flames of history as the worst president that could have possibly happened to the uh, American people. I'm just sad he didn't get to grab me by my pussy. Just kidding. I'm not sad. But the metaphorical pussy, yeah. That's true. Oh, my God. So the over-narcissist would be Donald A. Trump, and A would stand for asshole. (laughs) Donald A. Trump. An over-narcissist is someone that you just, you know that you're around them because you feel uncomfortable because they're just going, they're going to just use you 
Yeah. Until you're all used up and or you leave. Sure. You can't run away fast enough. Right. That is if you have a healthy sense of self and you're not a codependent person. In that case, you might not run away at all, right? Well, you might need that narcissist. Like what would a codependent need a narcissist for? Oh, wait, are you jumping ahead? Are you that kid? Am I? Yes. <laughs> you just said they might need them. Well, they might. This goes back to my, um, oh, Jesus Christ. Are we going to just bounce around in, in very typical Kimberly ADHD style? I have an outline that we're just going to bounce around. Now. That's No, that's fine. Let's do it. Let's bounce. It's a very organic uh, conversation. Uh, codependent people. Codependent people have this need to be loved at all costs. Hmm. Codependent tendencies or traits are at the core of my little mantra, don't set yourself on fire in order to keep other people warm. So they do too much because they're going to maybe get good accolades or something out of it. They need to be loved at all costs, up to and including sacrificing their sense of self. I see. So if the narcissist shows them this love that's fake in order to get that codependent person to give them that love then that forms kind of a symbiotic parasitic relationship. And often the person that suffers the most clearly is the one that's codependent. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to that actually and talk about codependency and fawning because they seem similar, but they're two different things. Okay. So that's the overt narcissist. The covert narcissist, this is going back to Burgermeister, Meisterberger's model here. The covert narcissist is very two-faced. When they're kind of away from the individual, they put on a good show, they talk nicely about them. But when they're with those people, they really turn him or turn him into the evil person. Outside, this person is the hero. Inside the home, inside the private uh, arena, they're really kind of ugly. Mm, wow. And speaking of parasitic relationships, they are the kind of the one that siphons things from other people so that they don't have to do the work. They're the person that kind of in a group project that shows up on the last day uh, and does all the talking, but hasn't done any of the work. And takes all the credit. Takes all the credit. Uh-huh. <laughs> and actually, can, they can be really super cruel and manipulative. And then they play the victim. God. Oh, you're coming down on me. So why are you attacking me? After all, I did all the right. I I did all the work. How can you how could you say this about me? Mm-hmm. The incredulity. Right. So that's a covert narcissist. The seductive narcissist, and I don't want to plagiarize. I guess if I'm citing Burgermeister, I could just read his work, but I don't I want to more paraphrase it. The seductive narcissist really plays on the individual's need to be validated. Okay. Extra amounts of love, extra amounts of validation, extra, 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 because they know in the end, this person is going to be a good fuel source, a good long-term fuel source to be able to give them the uh, soothing that their narcissistic wound needs for a long time. Wow. That just seems like it takes so much forethought. Who is your next victim that you can suck dry? Absolutely. Wow. The narcissist is constantly looking for their next source of fuel. Do they even know they're doing it? I don't think so because the narcissistic wound happens at such a young age that this pattern uh, is set at such a young age that I don't know that it's really a conscious thing that happens. Now, I haven't worked with that many classic narcissists, so I can't really say clinically, but I think that there are a few narcissists that do want to change, that they do see that there is enough stuff in their life that they could potentially lose by their fuel sources walking away, that they do seek help and they do decide to change. So it's possible. It is possible. It's very rare. It's highly unlikely. Uh, there are actually a lot of podcasts about recovering from narcissism as the narcissist. Wow. There's a lot of resources about this. Yeah. It was really surprising to kind of dig into this further and, and discover the amount of resources that are available. Interesting. A lot of resources for people that are victims of the narcissist. 
One of my favorite resources that I give to people all the time is a Reddit, is a subreddit called Raised by Narcissists. That'd be a good one. It's a fabulous one. And often when I'm talking with a client or just any individual Joe Schmo on the street, you, for example, you're Jane Schmo. Sure. If we're talking about like your mother, which we have in the past, and if I start hearing that you feel that that person may or may not be a narcissist and you're not quite sure, you know, where you fit into the whole formula, I'll suggest, hey, take a look at Raised by Narcissists. Just read some of the narratives. Read some of those stories. Yeah. See if they ring true for your experience. Mm-hmm. One thing that I know is becoming more and more uh, acceptable and more and more uh, available with the advent of the internet and community, many people are doing a lot of self-diagnosing or self-assessing. This is very common in the autistic and uh, ADHD communities. It's very common in the trans and queer and non-binary communities. Mm-hmm. You don't need to come to a therapist to be diagnosed. And if you meet enough people, they share these this information about you and they say, hey, you might be this, you might be that. Give this some consideration. I think with the Raised by Narcissist community, you could come in and one could share their story if they felt so inclined. And they would get some really lovely feedback from people that if they haven't experienced the same exact thing, they would certainly have a tremendous amount of empathy and give you support in the way that you might need in a public forum. I'm making a note of that because I would love to check that out and just kind of see what people are saying and see if that sort of fits my situation. Sure, sure. Uh, And that would be reddit.com, and then the subreddit would be called Raised by Narcissists. Uh, Very active subreddit. Got it. The seductive narcissism also, because they need lots of accolades from the outside coming in, they often will have more than one fuel source. That makes sense, yes. Mm -hmm. I just think it's just so calculated, this idea of buttering someone up to ultimately get what you need or take from them later. Sure. So sneaky, isn't it? It is kind of covert in that it's very backdoor. It's very sneaky. The seduction, I think, is the part where you get sucked in because they make you feel really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to give you these accolades and this praise as being a very good cog in my machine. You're a wonderful addition to my organization. But in the end, it's my organization. I'm the conductor. I'm the president. I'm the leader. Any accolades that the, that the community is going to give are going to land on me. But I need you to be a part of this organization so that I can ultimately get those broader sources of veneration from the outside world. Mm-hmm. You're my minion. You're my pawn. You're my tool in my larger game of getting more energy to me than I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you a little. I'm going to make you feel good. I'm going to give you that love and that kindness and that validation. That is not genuine, right? Well, so here's the thing. It might be genuine. They might truly mean it. These people may be a valuable part of their organization. But in the end, because I can't really judge anybody's uh, motivation, but in the end, the accolades that they will receive from the outside world will far outweigh the validation and the motivation and the love that they're giving to these to their minions or to their pawns. Wow. That sounds like Mormons. Mormon church. Don't jump ahead. (laughs) I'm sorry. You're just describing it. Did you sit on the front row of every class you're ever in in grade school, Mary? (laughs) You did, didn't you? Oh, I got you paid. (laughs) I was a good student. What can I tell you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's what we're calling it. (laughs) Teacher's pet. Teacher's pet. That's hilarious. I paid attention. They appreciated that. At least I wasn't like falling asleep and with drool coming out of my mouth. (laughs) Here's the fourth type, the vindictive narcissist. I'm afraid already. Well, they're the most dangerous kind. And well, as you should be. Yeah. 
The vindictive narcissist, I think, is an overt narcissist on volume 11 or 12. Oof. Ouch. With some gas thrown on the fire for good measure. The vindictive narcissist actually feeds on chaos, and often they feed on the chaos that they have created. They'll set up a situation or scenario that causes chaos, and then they feed off of that chaos. Wow. Ex-Mormon listeners that may have come here from TikTok, particularly around the end of March, early April of 2021, they will know of a scenario in which there is an overt narcissist who is also a vindictive narcissist. And I don't want to call people out because that's not my job here. But if you're having some curiosity about what a vindictive narcissist is, there's a very clear template of someone who creates chaos and then they feed off of the chaos. And often that chaos that they create is abuse. Uh, It can be uh, domestic violence. It can be um, sexual predation. It can be uh, uh, all kinds of ways that create victims that are truly harmed. And then when those people decide to stand up and push back, then that original person that created the chaos, they get to feed off of that chaos and play the victim. That's part of the narcissistic cycle, which we can talk about right now. The narcissistic cycle is this. The individual, the narcissist, feels threatened, and then because they feel threatened, because that they see that their narcissistic, their original narcissistic wound has a risk of being hurt or re-damaged in order to protect themselves, protect that narcissistic wound, they externalize that and they attack others. So the cycle one, or part one of that cycle, is uh, feeling like you're threatened or that your inner child that's wounded is threatened. Mm -hmm. To protect that person, you reach out and you abuse other people in the various ways that narcissists can. When the others stand up and fight back, the narcissist then plays the victim. And then after they've played the victim for long enough, that empowers them to go out and look for a new cycle or a new source of fuel. Good Lord. To make them feel better, right. So this narcissistic cycle, that's why the narcissist is constantly looking for a new source of fuel. So the the narcissistic abuser sets up this cycle so that they have the fuel ready to go when they're wounded, then they attack, then the abusers come back and then they play the victim and then they can go on to another source of fuel. Or in the case of a very codependent relationship, they just continue to abuse their codependent partner. And so what do they get out of it? They get out of hurting someone that, oh, well, now you see what it feels like to be hurt, kind of like when I was a kid. Like, what's that feeling? It depends on the individual and it depends on the narcissistic wound and I think it depends on the dynamic in play. But ultimately what it is, is I'm protecting my true inner self by creating this false aggressive outward self that can only protect my inner self by attacking others. And that false self needs the accolades, needs the approval, needs the validation of others to self-soothe that inner wound that's still damaged, that original narcissistic wound. God, that's so complicated. At the core of every narcissist, And this is important to remember, if we want to truly develop empathy and compassion for narcissists, which might be hard, but it can happen, inside every narcissistic individual or adult is a really fragile, injured, hurt child that's in a tremendous amount of pain. That's true. I think on that note, I want to take just a quick commercial break, and then we're going to get back into more of this conversation with Kimberly in just a second. Okay, we are back with more of our conversation with Kimberly Anderson. How'd you like that setup? 
It's beautiful. <laughs> we had a little bit of drama during the commercial break because Kimberly spilled her coffee. What happened over there? Well, I reached down to drink some water because I have a friend of mine that's always telling me, drink your water, drink your water, drink your water. You know who you are if you're hearing this podcast. So I reached <laughs> down to drink my water and I knocked over a nearly full iced coffee. That's so sad. And so glug, glug, glug all across the floor of the Airstream. So, of course, now I'm in the middle of a Exxon Valdez-esque <laughs> <laughs> coffee rescue. God. Does that date me? Are there any waterfowl <laughs> that need cleanup? <laughs> Maybe. I do live by the, by the river. <laughs> How many herons were injured or ducks in this process? Uh, more than one. You know, and Dawn Dish Detergent looked at that as a huge opportunity, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely, they did. I have some in, within eyesight at this moment because <laughs> of the Exxon Valdez. Of course. And how does it do on coffee spills? That's what I want to know. Uh, it cleans up the coffee mugs quite well. Well, that's part of it. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Where were we? We were talking about relational dynamics with codependents and narcissists. I want to talk a little bit about codependency versus fawning. Mm-hmm. Let's do that. One of the things that has happened recently with trauma and brain science, brain development, is we have this limbic response from our amygdala that has a fight, flight, or freeze. That's how our brain wants to uh, respond to danger or perceived danger is to either fight it, to run away, or to just hide, freeze from it. There's a fourth trauma response that's called fawning, F-A-W-N-I-N-G. And fawning is essentially the individual's response prior to a traumatic event. Interesting. They see the development or the potential for the traumatic event to happen because of a pattern they've observed in the past. And so what they do is they develop this personality trait or characteristic where they're constantly trying to take care of someone else to make sure that they don't erupt into an emotional outburst that could cause the fawner more harm. Hmm. So it's a preemptive way to avoid trauma by just taking care of ad nauseum in kind of almost an obnoxious way to make sure that the discomfort of the anxiety for the narcissist doesn't come to pass. And not always, the fawning response doesn't always happen with a narcissist within that dynamic, but often it does. The fawning is a trauma response. Okay. That can be mistaken for empathy. So maybe you know somebody who just gives you compliments constantly. And it's after a while, you're like, wow, I'm not that compliment worthy. What's going on? Or overconnected or constantly uh, taking on your emotions and projecting and assuming what you're feeling or thinking. This is so interesting because I have an aunt, my mother's sister, who I feel like does that. She's always like, gosh, that must be so difficult. She's just always acting like she gets it. You are the most important person. She gets it. Yeah. Meanwhile, my mother, her older sister, I think everything is all about her and she has narcissistic tendencies. So that's interesting that they're in the same family. Right. Like what happened to them growing up? that one went down one path and one went down another? That's a great question. And that's actually a very trauma-informed way to look at it. You're looking at them not in the idea that what is wrong with them, but instead you're wondering what happened to them. Yeah. 
That's a trauma-informed perspective when we're working with individuals. We don't look at what's broken or, or wrong with the individual. Instead, we want some context and some history to find out really what are the underlying indicators for why they're behaving now. I look at behavior as a symptom of a deeper illness or a deeper um, event or series of events. Absolutely. Yeah, behavior is just a, a flag or an indicator for something else that happened earlier in the person's life. Mm-hmm. So the narcissist doesn't care if it's a fawning response. The narcissist doesn't care if it's a codependent response. The narcissist really doesn't even care about the original trauma as long as the individual is giving them the fuel, the, the accolades, the care, the love that they need to soothe that original traumatic uh, narcissistic wound. So if you feel within yourself that you're very, very, very empathetic, that you connect with others on a very deep, personal, emotional level, that you tend to take on their pain or their worries or their cares, I would look really closely. And if it's causing you distress, if it's not causing you distress, then you know, live long and prosper. But if it is causing you distress, then you may want to examine that a little bit closer mm-hmm. and find out if that is a result of a fawning response, if that's some codependency. Uh, and if you are inclined to change that pattern, you can find a professional that can help you through that, some of those things you'd like to change. Right, because then sometimes people will just say, well, I act this way because I'm an empath. Right. They, they throw that term around, mm-hmm. right? And that's an excuse. It's uh, not all, all the time, but often it can be an excuse or a shield to protect them from looking deeper and excavating some of their pain and trauma. Mm, interesting. Mm-hmm. It's easier to be an empath and to overconnect than to step back and look deeper into your own personal history and trauma. I actually see that a lot. Wow. Especially within the relational dynamic between a narcissist and a codependent person or a narcissist and someone who fawns. Hmm. Now, let's also make sure that we understand that not every person that's codependent or not every person that has a fawning response is in a relational pattern with a narcissist. Gotcha. But it's very, very, very common. And when we start talking about institutional narcissism within the context of Mormonism, we'll see that it actually is kind of codified into doctrine. One thing that we may not get a chance to talk about today, which is fine because we can come back and talk about it another day, but if you suspect you have a relationship with a narcissist, okay, so in my case, my mother, who I believe has narcissistic tendencies, she is not diagnosed, that's what I believe. I am in this relationship with her. What can people do who are forced to have these relationships with narcissists or people they suspect having narcissistic tendencies. And that is so challenging to navigate those relationships. Well, it is because sometimes the abuse from the narcissist comes in a variety of ways, some of which is financial abuse, time abuse. In other words, you don't have any time to take care of yourself because you're too busy taking care of me and my environment or our children or our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the financial ab- abuse certainly would prohibit that person from going and, and you know seeking any kind of professional uh, mental health help. Yeah. Um, Not having access to money, not having access to like insurance cards or things like that. The narcissist may shame or guilt the individual or gaslight. Often gaslighting is part of this narcissistic cycle. Gaslight them to feeling that what they're experiencing isn't true, that they're actually crazy. Right. Gaslighting is a very, very common and a powerful tool used by a narcissist to keep that person within their range of their needing fuel. Mm -hmm. So this trifecta of kind of Mormon or any individual's ability to break out of a maladaptive you know, pattern or a system would be recognizing codependency, recognizing boundaries or lack of boundaries or their inability to set boundaries, and also looking for narcissistic abuse 
or narcissistic control by either an individual or an institution. Yeah. Let's talk about what narcissists fear. Ooh, yeah. If you want to put the fear into a narcissist, here are kind of nine things. And I want to make sure I cite this person correctly, too. Oh, this is also Alexander Berger, Meester, Meester Berger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's kind of a smart guy. That's interesting that I found two pieces by him. So if the, if the narcissistic wound, let's think about this. The narcissistic wound by the narcissist basically is an underlying uh, shattered sense of self, mm-hmm. possibly fueled by shame. What are ways that we can continue to hurt? I mean, and I'm not sharing these things to empower individuals to injure vindictively a narcissist. But if you're in a narcissistic relationship and you want to start to push back, here are some things that you can do. You can reject them. And we'll talk about that in a minute too. Just flat out rejection. It's hard to do with a narcissist. Mm -hmm. You can embarrass them and humiliate them. Now, with a vindictive narcissist, that might come back to haunt you because they will use that against you. Oh, now you're hurting me. Mm -hmm. That playing the victim. Failure. Narcissists don't like to fail because it makes them look bad. And often that original narcissistic wound is a failure that was exploited or made fun of or shamed by that caretaker, that parent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Receiving gratitude. Narcissists have such a fractured, damaged sense of self that they really don't feel like they deserve gratitude. That's challenging because if you feel like you're wounded by a narcissist on the regular, it's difficult to look inward and think, what am I grateful for for this person? (laughs) You know? Right. And I'm not saying this is a formula for success, that we have to tick all these boxes off. Mm -hmm. But this is just one way that if you want to try to, you know, break out of that narcissistic pattern, instead of thinking about these as as ways of hurting the narcissist, these could be thought of as ways to demonstrate to the narcissist that you're no longer willing to be their source of fuel. Yeah. These are ways you can set up boundaries with the narcissist in order to put yourself out. You're not on fire anymore and you're not keeping them warm. Not being admired, if you don't admire the narcissist, suddenly you take them off of that pedestal, treat them like a normal human being. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feeling remorse. That kind of maybe goes, ties into gratitude a little bit. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're sorry, you're not pushing back against me. Now, be very careful with this remorse because often what a narcissist will do, it will prey on your sense of guilt. It will make you feel like you have to capitulate or be sorry for or accept responsibility for things that are not your fault, things that you're not responsible for. Right. So that feeling, that guilt that can twist on the victim, on their conscience, and really start to play with their, well, I, I, I need to make them happy. This is the part of that fawning response. I'm going to accept responsibility for stuff that's not my fault in order to keep you happy. What is also handy, I've noticed, is having good, good friends who pay attention. I'm going to give you an example. One time I was out with my mother at dinner with friends. And she loves to tell stories about my father and their early marriage, et cetera. And she was telling a story. And and I was trying to remember something, too, that I experienced with my dad. So I told a story about what I remembered. And my mother said, well, that's not what happened at all. You don't remember him at all, do you? Rather defensively. That's gaslighting. Yeah. And I was so used to it that I didn't even react. I didn't call her on it. I didn't think that it was like an unkind thing because that was just what my mother said to me regularly. Mm. It took later a friend saying, wow, I wanted to throttle your mom. And I was like, why would she say? And she told me, she repeated back to me and I was like, oh yeah, I guess that wasn't very nice, was it? Mm. It didn't, it didn't occur to me because I was so used to it. Sure. 
What was the power dynamic in play at that moment in your life? How old was your mother and how old were you? Oh, yeah, I was like probably 35 or 40. And that parent-child relational dynamic was still in play. Yes. Why was she so offended that I had a different memory? My father died when I was 12. It's not my fault that I get some of the details fuzzy. Right. You know, why was that so offensive to her that she had to call that out? So let's think think about it from her point of view. Maybe she does remember it differently. Maybe her experience at the time was so full of trauma and sadness and sorrow that she had to bury some of that stuff in order to just process and get through life at all. And throw me under the bus in the process. Well, it would be easier to do that than to sacrifice herself. Lordy. Mm-hmm. This stuff is deep. It is deep. So complicated. And it will bring up old stuff. It will trigger memories. Uh, I want to make sure that the listening audience is taking care of themselves while they're listening to this. I'm certain more than one person out there is reliving some old stuff. Yeah. When do you want to dive into institutional narcissism? After the break? Yeah, let's take another break. We're not going to do patrons this week. Sorry, patrons. Sorry, patrons. We'll get to you next time. Uh, We may talk about the LDS church coming up after the break. How could we not? How could we not? (laughs) The big narcissistic elephant in the room. In the room. That's right. Okay. Be right back. Hey, we're back. Just like that. Do you need to clean up coffee or anything, Kimberly? (laughs) No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Thank you, though, for your consideration. (laughs) You are so welcome. Institutional narcissism. It's interesting. I've been thinking about the Mormon church as a narcissistic entity for several years, and I've kind of developed my own theory about it. Mm -hmm. And as I was kind of preparing for this podcast, I did a lot of digging. And there's a lot of research about institutional narcissism as it relates to the Catholic Church. Ah. There's not so much information about it as it relates to the Mormon Church because, you know, relatively small, uh, insignificant organization. You know, researchers don't care about Mormonism because it's not that big of a deal, globally speaking. True. So there's not going to be much information about it. Here's me rejecting, by the way, and minimizing Mormonism in an attempt to discredit it. In a way that you could do that kind of a thing with a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just be like, oh, no big deal. Yeah. Yeah, little life tip right here. Here, I'm modeling that, right? I like it. I did find a, an amazingly rich research paper, Institutional Narcissism, Arrogant Organization Disorder, and Interruptions in Organizational Learning. Hmm. This is a paper written by Lynn Godkin from Lamar University in Lubbock, Texas, and Seth Alcorn from the University of New England in Biddeford, Maine. Okay. This article aims to present an alternative approach to diagnosing behavioral barriers to organizational learning. This is fascinating. Well, it is fascinating, especially when we kind of look at the nine DSM criteria for individuals. This paper posits that there are actually 11 characteristics that you can put on top of an organization out of their 11 criteria for arrogant organizational disorder, they are suggesting that seven must be present if one is going to, quote, diagnose an organization with arrogant organizational disorder. Okay. So put on your Mormon glasses, friends, or whatever organization you might be be concerned or curious that might be uh, narcissistic, and let's just go through these. Number one, exceptional pride is held for the organization its accomplishments, and great hope is held for future successes. Leaders see few limitations regarding what may be accomplished and are not inhibited as to how to accomplish this. Check. Number two, 
feelings of exceptional entitlement support exploitiveness of others and customers and the public interest. We are the one true church. When excessive pride is threatened and the pursuit of goals frustrated, envy and rage will arise. The leader or management group becomes hyperactive and willing to expend limitless time and energy to succeed and win out over rivals, including aggression often tinged with sadism and revenge. Now, I'm sure you could think of a good revenge story about the Mormon church. I don't know enough about it. Like, what have they done to exhibit a behavior like that? Can you think of an example? I can think of thousands of examples. And they are all of the dead, queer, and trans former Mormons within Mormonism. So just any time they've spoken out against uh, sin. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sadism and revenge. These are anti-trans, anti-gay legislative bills brought before the state of Utah. That's true. They're actually legislature, Mm -hmm. not just what you talk about on Sunday morning. That's right. They're actively hyperactive and willing to expend limitless time and energy to succeed and win. Mm. They filed amicus briefs at the Supreme Court against the uh, ERA, against uh, Title IX legislation. It never ends. It's a treadmill of persecution towards queer people from the Mormon church. Well, and it has to, because look at their agenda is all about the traditional family. Doctrinally, they've painted themselves into a corner so that if they don't do this, then they basically capitulate and go back on their own words, which would be a source of humiliation and shame. And for a narcissist, that would never happen because the narcissist at their core is never wrong. Yeah. That's why the church has never apologized for changing a stance on something. Right. Uh, Number four, there is a history of firings and demotions and of non-supporters and resistors being banished to internal organizational Siberias. Sam Young. Resistance is a threat and will not be tolerated. Well, we have a long line of individuals. Kate Kelly. John, Kate, Sam, the September 6th. A long Mm -hmm. line of them. Mm -hmm. A lot of my friends. Me. Yeah. Their shunning is not doctrinally supported, but it is part of the community's response to people who push back. Mm. Management by intimidation is common. Well, you know what? It can't get more intimidating than uh, you're going to be banned to outer darkness. You know what I mean? That's the ultimate banishment. Yep. They've cornered the market on it. And if your employment is dependent on uh, Temple Recommend mm-hmm. from the church, if your social, cultural... Uh, environment is familial environment is dependent on your involvement in Mormonism, which it often is. Often is, uh huh. It's a very enmeshed cultural society. Mm-hmm. Number six, fear suppresses accurate reality testing and creativity. Oh yeah, we all are the same. We are Mormon Church. All the women are the same. All the men are the same. No individuality. So what's the primary song in a minor key? Follow the prophet, follow mm-hmm. the prophet, mm-hmm. follow the prophet. He mm-hmm. knows the way. Mm-hmm. Follow the. Hey, that's hilarious. Number seven. This is actually really, really clear. Filtered information flows after organizational reality and magical thinking is present. Mm. Operating problems 
may be seemingly thought will pass without taking action to resolve them. In other words, stick your head in the sand. Oh, nothing to see here. Out of sight, out of mind. So these are, this is not the droid you're looking for. <laughs> right. It is too dangerous to confront management behavior that contributes to problem generation and perpetuation. Yeah, because you'll be kicked out. That's right. If you point out the problems, ah, uh, we don't like the squeaky wheel. No grease for you. Yeah, look what happened to Sam Young when he started pointing out these bishop interviews. Mm-hmm. Number eight. Others are frequently blamed and scapegoated. Ah, yeah? It's not my problem. We're not the problem. You're the problem. Mm -hmm. Number nine, the sense of mood within the organization is unpredictable, where one day a great success is celebrated, and a week later there exists despair over not achieving the smallest of goals. Whew, that's confusing, isn't it? Which is it? Do you love me or do you hate me? Meet the Mormons. No, we're not the Mormons. Here's a million dollar, billion dollar ad campaign about meeting the Mormons. No, we're not the Mormons. You call us Mormons, we're persecuted. Hey, meet the Mormons. No, you call us Mormons. No, you don't call us Mormons. You don't respect us. You're not calling us Mormons. Yeah. Wow. It's very confusing. Mm-hmm. Number 10. Many in the organization are alienated from the organization and its leadership group, preferring to hide out in their foxholes, offices, and cubicles. Yeah, don't want to be too visible because right. then you'll be the you'll be the squeaky wheel. Well, so there's a phrase in or a term in Mormonism called PIMO, P I M O, and that stands for present in membership only. Huh. That would that would indicate an absence of belief. So if you're a PIMO, are you revered for just, you know, kind of keeping your mouth shut? Oh, no, 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 no. You're never seen. Okay. And is that favorable though? Um, it depends on who you're talking to. I think if you're the person who is sacrificing yourself to keep your family intact, that could be venerated. Hmm. If you're the, oh, you just haven't heard the right testimony yet. Your belief will come later. It's okay that you're only here without belief. If you come here long enough, your belief will follow. It's okay. Thank you for coming, sister. Thank you for coming, brother. You're a great example to your family. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like why young queer people are encouraged to go through with marriages because right. then their straight heterosexual sex will cure them, yep. supposedly. You'll find the right girl. You'll have a family and settle down. This phase will end. Yeah, this phase will end. You'll find your straightness. Uh-huh. Or your <laughs> cisness. Cisness. Number 11. In and out group dynamics are polarized and there is considerable evidence of distressing and destructive internal competition and open warfare. Wow. Let's hear an example of that. In and out group dynamics are polarized. All right. Well, within Mormonism, we have two groups of people, Mormons and non-Mormons, active and inactive, married in the temple or not. That's true. There are all kinds of ways we have insider-outsider dynamics inside Mormonism, childless or not. Oh, that's a big one. Full tithe pair, temple goer. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you have a stake calling or do you just have a ward calling? Or do you have any calling at all? Oh, my goodness. Who do you know? Who you related to? Pioneer stock? Wow. There's so many ways to be in or out of a club within Mormonism. Garments or no? Even inside the temple, you'll see people with fancy temple clothes or plain temple clothes. Oh, depending on what you can afford, maybe? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And ironically, the temple is supposed to be the place where everyone is equal. And even in that area, there's a stratification based on what you can show. Jewelry, rings, watches, shoes. Well, it's not equal. You need a man to get you through the veil. Well, gender, certainly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it'll never be equal inside that place. Oh, heavens no. It can't be equal. They can pretend mm-hmm. it's equal. 
In the last general conference, in fact, 38 speakers were men and two were women. Sounds like equality to me. Incredibly equal. Yeah. And to coin a Reddit term, slash S indicates the presence of sarcasm. (laughs) Yes. So there's the arrogant organizational disorder. Out of those 11 criteria, the organization has to hit seven. I propose that Mormonism hits all 11, not once, not twice, but an infinite number of times. Yes. So having identified Mormonism as a narcissistic entity that needs fuel, who's the fuel? Mm, The people. The members, uh uh-huh. And within Mormonism, if we're playing with, you know, this arrogant organizational disorder and we're stratifying people in the organization as to the haves and the have-nots, we can stratify that a group of people into basically individuals that were born with penises or people that were born with vaginas. Mm-hmm. True. If you're born with a penis, you have the ability to have the priesthood. Mm-hmm. If you're born with a vagina, you do not have the ability to have the priesthood. That's true. And that delineates your role moving forward very clearly into one strict path or another. Yeah. Now, if the institution itself is narcissistic in nature and it needs people to run a narcissistic organization, it breeds and grooms and raises narcissists or rewards those people whose narcissistic personality traits show up naturally and it amplifies them. So often what happens is the leaders, if they're not narcissistic or have narcissistic traits already, they develop those traits in a process that's called acquired situational narcissism. They get a calling and narcissistic traits make their ability to enact or to execute that calling easier or more efficient for them. They will adopt narcissistic traits in order to fill that role in a better, more efficient way. And then they become ambassadors for the organization. They're perpetuating the same ideals. And put on a pedestal as the Mm -hmm. model for young men to follow Mm -hmm. if they want to aspire to righteousness, holiness, and success within the church. Yes. Mm -hmm. It trains them to become narcissists. Oof. Wow. People born without a penis, women, they are groomed and taught to be submissive. Mm -hmm. They are taught to have no boundaries. They are taught to accept every calling. Right. They are taught to self-sacrifice repeatedly. They are taught not to have a career. They are taught that their celestial glory and and destiny is to have children eternally. Mm, Yikes. They are literally the fuel that feeds the narcissist. If it's not their husband, it certainly is the church. Yeah. On the backs of women is a lot of unpaid labor making the church very wealthy. Good God. Mm -hmm. With no reward. No. Their eternal reward would be celestial existence, which in turn would be having babies forever. Sign me up. It's unbelievable how the arrogant organizational dysfunction keeps people trapped within the system. Yeah. Which makes me absolutely furious and livid and fuels my internal dumpster fire for at least another five years when Russell Nelson calls us lazy learners. Fuck that guy. Let's talk about narcissism in action. Mm-hmm. When the prophet of God, the mouthpiece of the Lord, stands at the pulpit and calls people lazy learners, if you were a parent and you went to parent-teacher conference and your child was getting C's, D's, and F's, and that teacher told you to your face that your child was a lazy learner— Oh, you'd be so pissed. You'd have that teacher's head on a platter. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you showed up at a job— And after all the training that you'd had, 
and you were doing some things, you know, incorrectly, some procedures incorrectly or forms or whatever have you, and your boss came up to you and they called you a lazy learner? Hopefully that person would be accountable for saying some shitty thing like that. Right. HR department, where are you? Mm-hmm. We need you. Yeah. And, it, and it, we can even turn inwards to Mormonism using one of their parables or one of their, uh, you know, stories. If the seed that's sown in poor soil, do we blame the seed for not growing? Or the soil. Right. Or the tender of the soil. Mm-hmm. It's not the seed's fault it's not growing. Maybe it wasn't cared for. Didn't get enough water. It, it wasn't taught well. So if we're going to talk about narcissism, here's what Mormons consider the prophet of God calling them that they're lazy learners, pure shaming language. Oh, yeah. It's not us. It's you. That's right. This is the most important thing God wants to tell me is that you're a lazy learner? Mm-hmm. Fuck you, God, and fuck you, Russell M. Nelson. I learned it from you. That's right. Yeah. Well, and so we did learn it from them. Let's look at the institutional structure of how we've been taught. You may not know this because you weren't raised in Mormonism, but I certainly was, and I taught it for years. We have a rotational system. Every four years, we have the same coursework, Old Testament, New Testament, Book of Mormon, Doctrine of Covenants, rinse and repeat, Old Testament, New Testament, yeah. Doctrine of Covenants, Prologue Price. The quad? Yep, the quad. We study that in a four-year <laughs> rotational pattern. The same manuals every year. We go to the temple where we are supposedly communing with God to learn the things that grant us exaltation and salvation and eternal life. We go to the temple and we are given so many questions with zero answers. I can guarantee you, everyone that's been to the temple has a thousand questions. They are desperate to have answered. And there is absolutely no resource on those answers for that questions other than read and pray and go back to the temple more often. And it's not secret, it's sacred. Right. Doubt your doubts. Believe until you believe. This is the epitome of lazy learning. In fact, they shun and belittle and ridicule people who seek learning, who seek to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. For years we were taught, those are the mysteries of God. Don't ask those questions. You'll learn about those later. And the ultimate cop-out for lazy learning, by the way, don't worry about it now. God will work it all out in the end. What does that even mean? Well, it means don't worry about it because we, <laughs> yeah. we don't have the answer. And when we're right. dead, it won't fucking matter. <laughs> yeah. So I could be right or wrong. I don't care because by the time you're dead, it won't matter anyway. And we'll have you right where we want you in the time being. Yeah. Ugh. Talk about manipulation. Oof. Talk about keeping you close to be the source of your fuel and your fire. So before we wrap this up. Oh, we're wrapping up? I'm just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> Everything I've ever read about navigating the narcissist relationship is, if you can avoid it, do. Right. <laughs> because there's no winning, right? No. And so this comes back around to the boundaries that when we've identified that we want to break free from a narcissist, often what we have to do is go no contact. Yeah. We just have to break off all ties, which makes it very difficult because a narcissist uses a tactic that we call uh, flying monkeys or using flying monkeys. This comes straight from the Wizard of Oz. Okay. This is how the Wicked Witch of the West could reach Dorothy. She couldn't reach Dorothy, but she could send out the flying monkeys to reach Dorothy. True. Often the narcissist will use flying monkeys in the form of people that still have a relational connection with the victim. Okay. They will use that victim's love and admiration and veneration of this mutual person to their advantage. Well, can you carry a message to Mary? Mm-hmm. Can you ask her how she's doing? And if the victim of the narcissistic abuse doesn't 
push back on that boundary, even to including the, the flying monkeys, the narcissist will always have a way to reach that person and use them as fuel, even if they're one degree of separation away. Yeah. Because if you have tried to set a boundary by saying, we don't have contact, this is my boundary. Right. And the narcissist ignores that boundary. Absolutely ignores it. Yeah. And goes to a family member, let's say, uh-huh. and tries to get messages to you. Uh-huh. That's a classic example of a narcissist dismissing you and your values and your boundaries. Right. And there's a direct parallel between Mormonism and its members. Yeah. They're always sending around messengers. Send the missionaries out. Send the visiting teachers out, right? Even after you resign, they still come and find you. If you move, they will call your parents and ask your parents where you've moved to so they can send uh, the new missionaries around. That is so violating. Absolutely, it's violating. They have a whole strategy around finding you using quasi-legal and quasi-suspicious ways. Making it difficult to resign, which what other church does that? I can't think of one. We won't let you leave. No. You can ask to leave, but we're just not even going to acknowledge that we have the request. Wow. I can't stand this church. I don't mind saying, Mm -hmm. ooh, evil. It's an abusive, toxic institution at its core. And if we think about this original narcissistic wound and go back to Mormonism, Mormons will readily identify their initial source of persecution. That narcissistic wound was when Joseph Smith started to become persecuted for claiming that he saw God in Jesus Christ. Mm. That narcissistic wound is from polygamous marriages. Mm-hmm. That narcissistic wound is having the temple burned down or, or any number of persecution stories that Mormons, that true-believing Mormons and active Mormons hold onto as proof the church is true. Those are the initial narcissistic wounds that Mormonism has. It's just perpetuating it over and Mm -hmm. over. So once you understand codependency and your role in it, once you understand boundaries, how to identify where they're needed, how to set them and how to maintain them, and once you understand narcissism, once you understand those three things very clearly, it's very uh, apparent very quickly that if you're in a codependent, abusive, boundaryless, narcissistic system, you now have enough information to say, this is not healthy for me. Yeah. And let me be clear. If after learning all of these things, the individual still says, oh, okay, I've heard this. I've learned it. I reject it. I don't like her thesis on this. Uh, I'm going to stay and be an active believing member. That's fine. But at least you've given it some thought. Sure. Because I think, again, back to that uh, scenario with my mother, I was so used to these little hurtful jabs Mm-hmm. that you sometimes need someone else to point it out to you. That's why people get therapists. It's for that other, that outsider opinion. Exactly. Wow, this is complicated. It certainly is complicated, uh-huh. Did we leave anything out today that you might want to touch on at a later date? This might be a good one for listener questions. For mm. instance, if after this episode, people want to ask questions, we could collect those and discuss them on a future podcast. I actually really like that. Without giving, you know, personal therapeutic advice in a one-on-one scenario, we can take general questions and we can respond to them. Because people might be wondering, okay, besides the church, that seems so obvious to me. Do I have a narcissist in my life? What does that look like? What does that make me? Am I codependent? They might want to break down the scenario a little bit for their own circumstance. And I have to be careful if I do it in a too much of a personalized way because I can't give therapy, but I can give general advice. 
I think that we wouldn't say their name. We would keep the questions anonymous. Maybe that would help a little bit. It certainly creates a barrier or some some anonymity, yeah. Okay. I do want to talk about The Four Agreements, which would be... Oh, wait a minute. I think I've read this book. Is this a book? No, it's a book. Yeah, I read this one. I love it. I do too, because it is the opposite of narcissism. Let's end on that. I love this. The Four Agreements. Be impeccable with your word. Mm. Speak with integrity. Say only what you mean. Avoid using the word to speak against yourself or to gossip about others. Use the power of your word in the direction of truth and love. I love it. Don't take anything personally. Nothing others do is because of you. What others say and do is a projection of their own reality, their own dream. When you are immune to the opinions and actions of others, you will not be the victim of needless suffering. Mm. Don't make assumptions. Find the courage to ask questions and to express what you really want. Communicate with others as clearly as you can to avoid misunderstandings, sadness, and drama. With just this one agreement, you can completely transform your life. I love this. The last one is always do your best. Your best is going to change from moment to moment. It will be different when you are healthy as opposed to when you are sick. Under any circumstance, simply do your best and you will avoid self-judgment, self-abuse, and regret. It's beautiful. And I love that there's, I guess, almost like an antidote to narcissism. Yeah. I would say this, too, that if you're asking yourself if you're a narcissist, you're probably not a narcissist. Any shred of empathy. Hang on to it. All right? <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Exploit empathy. That's my <laughs> new T-shirt. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, chase it. Chase. This, yeah. is, this is the empathy you're looking for. <laughs> I like it. Wow. What a good topic. It's, cru- it's a crucial topic. It's it very really crucial. Is. Yeah. It is. I really like the idea of answering some listener questions on this topic. It's a great idea. I wonder who thought of that. <laughs> and maybe any of the topics, maybe any of the topics with codependency and boundary setting, too. Uh-huh. And the boundary setting podcast, can I plug Bryce's podcast? Yes. So the Glass Box podcast, Bryce did an amazing almost four hours two different episodes of boundary setting and brought in some personal anecdotes from individuals, brought in an attorney, and then brought in myself as the therapist to talk about boundaries and boundary setting. And what's this podcast called again? This is not Naked. No, it's Glass Box Podcast. Glass Box Podcast. For some reason, I'm unfamiliar with this, but uh, not anymore. Bryce is too busy for his own good. (laughs) I think you're right. I'm like, this isn't Naked Mormonism. No. So so part one would be the codependency episode that I did with you and Shelly. Part two would be Boundaries with Bryce on Glassbox Podcast. And part three of this kind of this triangle of self-awareness is this episode about narcissism with you. Okay. Well, if anyone listening would like to give those a listen and maybe jot down a question or two about your own circumstance, we can attempt to get Kimberly back and read some of those. I think that's a great idea because I thought of it. Well, I'll sustain that. Yeah. Any opposed? It appears the voting has been unanimous. I'm my biggest fan, Kimberly. Do you not know this about me by now? It's the Mutual Appreciation Society. Kimberly, thank you so much. You're welcome. Once again. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I know our listeners do too. And there's a plane going overhead on your end. I can hear it. Yes. This will be the last time you ever hear from me because I'm being shot up as target practice. (laughs) 
God. <laughs> well, I think we should wrap this one up. Let's wrap it. Any last words? Last words. On a podcast about narcissism? Yeah. I would just say this. That if you recognize yourself in a narcissistic relationship that you're having a hard time getting out of, find whatever support you can and just mm. look at those nine ways that you can start to show the narcissist that you're unwilling or even unable to be that person's fuel source any longer. That's what it's going to take for them to discard you. Mm. Wow. And it's just that harsh, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They will treat you like yesterday's trash and they will throw you away. And all of the love and the accolades and the validation you've been getting from them will suddenly disappear. And you may feel yourself very sad and very lonely. Oof. And if this is a family member that we're talking about, a parent maybe, or someone similarly close to you, oof, that is mm -hmm. really hard. It's really, really hard. Really, hard. And we want to recognize that. So yeah, I'll validate their experience being very difficult. And I have empathy and sympathy because I both have experienced it and I understand it. Indeed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Kimberly, thank you. Also want to thank Dan from Extension Audio. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> and remember, everybody, steer clear of cults because guess what? They are no joke. They are no joke. Talk to you later. 